Amen. You guys go ahead and take a seat. Take a seat. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, grab that and turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Hey, like we say every week, if you don't have a Bible on the ends of the rows, there are Bibles there. Those are gifts for you that we'd love for you to have uh, if you want. And it's going to be on the screen for you. Don't worry. But um, we open up God's Word every week. So I'd love for you to do that. Genesis 22. All right. As you're getting there, let me set it up. Uh, in the mid-19th centuries, there was a physician named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he becomes a famous theologian, but um, the trajectory of his life is actually quite incredible. During this time as a physician, he did not believe in Jesus, and he was quite skeptical of Jesus. However, as the story goes, true story, um, the guy he looked up to the most, the guy he revered the most, was the chief of surgery that he worked underneath, um, he comes into Lloyd-Jones's office one day, and he simply says, hey, can I sit by your fire for a little bit? You see, the chief of staff, his significant other, I think it was his girlfriend, had just died. And Jones is like, sure, come sit by the fire, I guess. And he comes and he sits, and for the next two hours, um, doesn't say a word to him and just grieves over the loss of his significant other. And Jones says that that was the most impactful moment of his life. And here's why he says that. He says, for that, from that point in time, he looked at a man who seemed to have everything together. He had everything that Jones ever wanted. He was successful. He was the chief of surgery. He was, um, he, he was happy, like all these things. But for the first time, as he watched a man grieve in front of his fireplace, listen to what he says. He says, for the first time, I realized that the securities or the foundations of my securities were radically vulnerable, that nothing in life prepared you for that. And it didn't really matter how much success I had. It didn't really matter how much I had today. Life was fleeting. And the things that I felt like I had today, I had today and they were gone tomorrow. He looks over and he says, like Solomon, that it was like chasing after the wind. Because everything that I wanted in life, and you're talking about a man who was highly successful in Great Britain at that time. He was a physician. He was wealthy. He had everything. He sits with the picture of his moral, mortality in his face right in front of him. And he says, for the first time in my life, I realized that none of that stuff mattered because nothing can prepare you for that. And it doesn't really matter what you have. I had to ask the question, he says, where is my security? And honestly, this is what Jones learned. He learned the greatest lesson in life. And here it is, is that security is not found in the accumulation of stuff or even power. Security is found in something that's solid, something that's outside of yourself. And it took a man sitting in front of a fireplace for him for the very first time to come face to face with the reality that the success of this world does not give you security enough to deal with that. That one day, one day, and I know starting a sermon off like this isn't the happiest way of doing it, but one day we will all come face to face more with our mortality. And the question that we have to ask is, is the foundation of our life grounded in something more solid than what we have right here? Or am I living simply for the next thing? See, because what Lloyd-Jones recognized was that nothing that he had accomplished would prepare him for that moment. And what I want you to see today is that as we go through this saturated series and as we're looking at Genesis chapter 22 and the latter part of Abraham's life, it's the same exact thing that you have to ask yourself. So if you have a Bible, like I said, turn with me to Genesis 22. Today we're going to look at the last major scene in Abraham's life. It might be, honestly, one of the hardest chapters in the Bible, one of the weirdest chapters in the Bible. It's strange, if I'm honest with you. Like, when you read this account, it seems absolutely crazy what's about to happen. 
And what I want you to see today is that living, according to what you're going to see, that living the most saturated life or a life with the foundation that won't crumble under the weight and the pressure or of things outside of this world, listen, it comes at the same exact cost that Abraham's going to see, and it's this. It's not self-reliance. It's actually abandoning your reliance for an absolute and complete trust in God. That's what you're going to see. So what you're about to see, listen, God is going to ask Abraham to do something pretty significant. He's going to ask him to sacrifice the thing that represents his security. Actually, the most important thing to him. And if you were here last week, we talked about this. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abraham that he's going to give him a son. And I told you about the significance of a son. In the patriarchal society back then, your son was your Hebrew 401k, right? It was the thing that you depended on, and it was how you passed on your family lineage. It was everything to them, and God is going to come to Abraham after Abraham had already been promised a son, and he's going to ask him if he would give up his greatest hopes and dreams. He was going to ask him if he would sacrifice his son, and listen to me, because this is going to be really massively important. God does this because he cares deeply about Abraham's heart. And as I've told you this over the last few weeks, this, this series that we're doing on generosity is not simply about God after your stuff. God's after your hearts. And oftentimes there are things that come and they compete with us and our stuff and compete with God. And God says, if you're not willing to sacrifice those things, and I've told you this, idols, we call those things idols. Idols are often not bad things. They're often really good things that we turn into ultimate things and then they become our functional God. And Abraham, as he's about to see, is going to come face to face with this, if you will, supreme thing his security, his son, and God's going to tell him that. And just like Abraham, God cares about you. He cares about your heart. And sometimes, sometimes that means that there's some really challenging things that God does. And as I've said every week, like this is the thing that God wants more than anything, is he wants you to detach yourself from things that compete against him because he realizes and he wants you to see that your ultimate joy is found in something outside of yourself. It's found in a beautiful dependence on your creator. Same thing Lloyd-Jones found in that moment in time when he sat there and he looks out at a picture of himself and the trajectory of his life and he realizes none of that, none of that actually has the ability to carry me through that, but God does. So as we dive into this passage today and as I unpack exactly what's happening here, I want you to begin to imagine something. I want you to put the image in your mind because, again, you're going to see something crazy here. But if this is the case, that God is really after that one thing, my question for you is what is that one thing? What is that one thing in your life that you treasure above all things? Right? This is a question that we talked about in my small group last week. And my family often asks, if God asked me for that, it would be really difficult for me to give it to him. What is that one thing for you? I want you to imagine I want you to imagine that that one thing that you think is life is worth living for, what is that one thing that if you lost it, you'd become speechless, you'd become devastated? What is the one thing that if God asked you to give it up, it would be hard? So as you hear Abraham's story today, I want you to replace his son with that one thing and ask yourself that question, all right? Genesis 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. By the way, again, this is a really strange passage, and it starts off in a really strange way. But the way that it starts off is actually really massively important. And if you don't get this, you'll miss everything. You see here, if you underline words in your Bible, this is one of those words you should underline, which is God tested. Why does the writer, why does Moses tell us this from the very beginning that God tested him? 
Listen, if you don't understand that this is a test, you will run the risk of looking at God totally differently. See, God goes into the situation understanding that he's testing Abraham, that he's not actually going to follow through with the thing that he's telling Abraham to do. But the thing is, is Abraham doesn't know that. But you, as the reader, you need to know this, that God is testing Abraham. Listen, the way that you view what happens next will shape the way that you view the character of God. If you don't know that this is a test, it's really difficult for you to see God is good and loving. But if you do know it's a test, well, obviously, he's telling you from the very beginning, like, I'm not going through with this. All right, one other thing I want you to notice here as we unpack this passage is this, that God often tests those he loves. I want you to see that this is a regular um, occurrence in Scripture that God tests you, and he tests you because he loves you. Now, again, another thing you need to see is this test in Genesis chapter 22 comes after God makes a promise to Abraham six times. Starting in Genesis 12, like we looked at last week, God promises Abram a son. Five more times between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 22, God is going to make that promise, and he's going to reiterate his promise to Abraham, showing him that he is faithful to his promise. Okay, listen, this isn't on accident. Why, why do I say that? Because, listen, God doesn't test Abraham's faith like this the first time. It's oftentimes through a strengthening of his faith. It's little things. And every single time that God makes a promise to Abraham, it comes with a test. The first one, remember Genesis chapter 12 last week, God says, go. And he says, I'm not going to tell you where to go, just go. So he tests him, and Abraham passes. You'll see later on, God shows him and his, uh, and his brother, cousin Lot, um, that, that, that he's going to give them both a land, and Lot takes the better of them. But God says, trust me, I have something for you. God, over and over and over again, he increases the strength of Abraham's faith to the point where he puts him to the ultimate test. And why do I say that? Because, again, as you move forward in this, listen, you need to know there are going to be times in all of our lives that we've been tested, and we're going to be tested by God. And the reason for that is, is because God loves us. It's like anything. It's like working out. It's really hard to get stronger and to grow unless you exercise those things, and faith is the same exact way. So let me give you one quick thing to write down that's going to be helpful for you through life. Listen, write it down. The way that you increase faith is to exercise faith. Honestly, that's, that's true of all of our lives. The way that we increase our faith is that we exercise our faith. The way that God often increases our hope and our faith in him is that he helps by testing us to increase our faith. Okay, verse 2. Let's keep going. And he said, God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I will show you. Again, opening of the craziest Bible verse ever. Hey, go and sacrifice your son. Right, remember this. Last week I told you that when God makes the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he's 75 years old. It takes him 25 years before Abraham's born. So he's 100 years old by that time. And most scholars believe that Abraham, or Isaac right now might be about 20 years old. So it's 100, and he's 120 years old. And it's 45 years after the initial promise that Abraham has waited so long for. He waited for a son, and God finally shows up, and he gives him an heir. And listen to what God says. Now go and take your heir and sacrifice him. See, but Abraham believed God, and he walked by faith. So after 25 years of doing this, he looks at God and he says, I trust you and I will do exactly what you ask me to do. And then finally, God gives Abraham a son after 25 years. And I, sometimes I imagine this. Imagine the baby shower there, right? At this baby shower, when he's 100 years old, Sarah, Abraham, and Isaac got diapers at that one. They're, they're old enough. Yeah, there you go. That, that joke kind of worked. Um, 
I'm bad at jokes, by the way. So when they, when they do land, like I kind of laugh at myself. So finally, God, God gives them a son. God gives them a son. And then he tells them to sacrifice him. But let me get ahead of myself. And I want you to see something. Because I, when I teach through the Bible, I want you to see how to read the Bible properly too. There's significant details in when you read stories like this. Over and over and over again, you're going to see God talk about his son which means it's a really significant detail. Let me just run through these quickly. If you want to write them down, the verses you can and go back. But look, verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, verse 3, and his son Isaac, verse 6, and Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac, verse 7, here I am, my son, verse 8, Abraham said God will provide for himself the land for the burnt offering, my son, verse Nine, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood on the altar, and he bound his son. Verse 10, Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord came, and he says, Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you would not withhold your son, your only son. Verse 13, Abraham went, and he took a ram to be offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And verse 16, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, over and over and over and over and over again in this text, you're going to see God point to his son. I want you to hold on to that because that is a really, really significant detail. And by the way, when you read the Bible, repetition over and over again tells you that there's something significant about this. So always look for that. I want to show you why this is important, okay? Hold your place in Genesis 22. Go back just a few chapters to Genesis 15. Okay, Genesis 15, verse 1. Says this, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to Ab- came to him, your very own son, you see it, shall be the heir. Abraham should have known right there, God is good. And he brought him outside and said, look up towards heaven and number the stars. And if you are able to number them, by the way, I've mentioned this before to you, when Abraham looked up at those stars, those stars represented you. How beautiful of a promise is that? God says, look up at those stars, and if you can number them, that's what your descendants are going to look like. He's talking about you. Look up at those stars. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what's really cool about this passage is if you keep reading, and God is going to tell Abraham, I made this promise to you. Now, I want you to go and get a bunch of animals. It's kind of a weird passage. And he says, I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to lay them down. And here's what I'm going to show you is that I'm going to pass through those animals, not you. And here's what God's telling him. He's telling him, listen, there's a covenant blessing that I'm about to give to you, Abraham. And every covenant has blessings and curses, and I'm going to take both of those. I'm going to pass through the animal saying that if I don't actually do what I'm telling you to do right now, if I don't actually tell you that I'm going to bless you and give you a son, then you can bank on the fact that I will put myself in that place and I will die before I won't fulfill my promise. Why is this important? Because Genesis 15 should set up and remind Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 that that promise that God made in Genesis 15, that no matter what, your son will be an heir. And if it doesn't come true, then I'll kill myself. That God promise it and you can take it to the bank. This sets it up. This sets it up. So if you go back to Genesis chapter uh, 22, go back to verse 3, and look what he says. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Listen, he did it. God tells him to sacrifice his son. He gets up, and he's like, I'm doing it. He saddled his donkey, and he took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place to which God had told him. And on the third day, by the way, again, for me, I write things down, I underline things. This is three days. Imagine this, because I don't know about you, but I have three kids, and if God told me to sacrifice my son and I start walking up a hill for three days, halfway through that, again, I, I, maybe you're more spiritual than me, I'm probably giving up. 
I don't know if I can go through it with it like he does. I mean, my goodness, three days. I'm like, God, why have you not intervened yet? Honestly, I don't think I have the faith that he had. My faith is so dependent on God that I don't know if I could take my son, Elliot, and walk him for three days and not hear from God knowing what would have to happen. Imagine, just imagine if you're a dad in the room or your mom in the room, and you imagine day after day you go to bed and you wake up and you're still anxious about the future of what's about to happen here. See, I think that the only reason why Abraham could do this is because his faith wasn't like most of our faith. It wasn't like a cultural Christianity, a faith that cost you nothing and gained you everything. No, his faith was real. It was true. His faith rested on the core belief that God is who he said that he is, and he is good. So on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. He obeyed. He trusted. But imagine how difficult that would be. Again, I think sometimes we read these because we're familiar with them, and we don't imagine the scene. We don't imagine that God showing up to Abraham, and he says, you know the promise that I gave you, the one thing that you wanted more than anything. Yeah, you know that thing. I want it now. Imagine. Imagine the gravitas of that moment of God showing up and he says, everything that I've promised you, your future, your heir, everything that you've waited your entire life for, I need that. Uh, I just imagine Abraham couldn't sleep at night. I imagine he stayed up crying all night long and looking up and with tears flowing down his face, praying to God and saying, God, where are you? You ever been there? Listen what happens, verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Next one to underline there is we'll come again to you. In Hebrew, in Hebrew, it's actually plural, which means he is implying we are coming back to you. We're going to come back. Me and my son are coming back. This is a key verse in the passage. See, I believe that God knew somehow, I believe Abraham knew somehow, some way God would intervene. That either God was going to step in and stop it, or God could even raise the dead, as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews says. But one way or another, I believe that Abram's faith was so sure on the promises of God that it was like, I don't know what's going to happen in this moment. I really don't, but I know that my son is coming back with me. And listen, there's a really, really good lesson to learn here. Listen, God's past promises are always guarantees of his future fulfillments. Here's what I need you to see in your own life. Oftentimes, when you look back in the Bible, you see God's goodness and you see his promises and you see that he fulfills those promises and you can trust the Lord based on his character of his past that he's not going to fail you in the future. You get that, right? Like Jesus already died on the cross for you, which means that the deposit for your life has been paid and God's not coming again. So oftentimes, whenever, when I say coming again, I don't mean like he's not physically coming again. He's not coming for that payment again. And oftentimes, when you are walking through life and you're like, God, do you, do you love me? Like, do you, are you there for me? God's like, look at what I've done. Look what I've done and just trust in my past. That's what Abraham did. He knew God was good because he already experienced the goodness of God. So Abraham was going up on that mountain and he was going to worship the Lord and he was coming back with his son. See, sometimes, friends, City Church, sometimes you need to be reminded that God is good, that he's been good to you. And he's, if you really take a second and you really do a diagnostic of your life, you can see God's goodness written all over it. Let me just give you a few that I wrote down of things that you absolutely had zero control over that God was good for you with. Here's one, where you were born. I don't know about you, I travel the world quite a bit, and I, like, I'm going to South Asia in a few weeks, and one thing I realized is that I could have been born there. I could have been born in poverty. I could have been born in a family who would live and die and never hear the gospel, but I was not. How about this, the family that you were born into? 
right? You could have been born into a different family, but oftentimes the family that you get has a massive impact on your life. How about this? Your ability to learn. I think that's something you take for granted. Right? There are a lot of people that don't even have the ability, the, the uh, big word, noetic ability to, to, to understand life. How about another one? Your physical abilities to walk and talk. Right? The things that we do that we take for granted, your health. Most importantly, your salvation. Right? Don't, don't get this wrong. God opened up your heart. God died in your place. God gave you a savior. See, the next time that you are looking at hard times, God looks at you and says, why don't you stop and remember? Why don't you remember what I've done? Because my past faithfulness is always a guarantee of the fact that I've not left you or forsaken you. That's it. Do you believe in God's character and his goodness? Verse six. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took his hand, I took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went up, both of them, and Isaac said to his father, by the way, Hebrew scholars tell us that there's a period at the end of each one of these words, and it slows down the narrative quite a bit, and you need to read it in that kind of a drama. So let me read it that way. Isaac says to his father, my father. See how it slows down? And he said to him, here I am, my son. And he says, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the offering? Like, you got to read it that way. This is, this is the intensity of which he's asking him. It's almost like Isaac's like, Dad, like, for real, though, like, we've got fire and wood. You even have that knife. But where's the lamb? He's like, like last time you used that knife was when I was, like, eight days old, and you, oh, you're not going to circle. <laughs> he's like, Abraham's like, no, 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 actually, let's go with that, because <laughs> that's way better than what's about to happen here. And, you know, he, he's like, gosh, Dad, like, hang on. We've been doing this our whole life. I know what's happening. But where, where's the lamb? Listen to Abraham. Abraham said to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went up together, both of them. And when they came to the place to which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. So they went up, and don't miss this, because I think you often, we often miss this. It didn't just take an extreme amount of faith for Abraham to do this. It also took an extreme amount of faith for Isaac to do this. Both of them had to show an immense amount of faith in their father, right? Isaac's like, God, I, I see everything we need for worship, but I don't see the lamb. And his dad's like, well, son, you're the lamb. And think about this. Abraham's about 120 years old, and Isaac's about 20. Imagine the faith that it would take in this moment for him. So look, look back at verse 9 and read it properly. And when they came to the place to which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid on it the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son. And he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. All right, let me point out these details again for you. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that Abraham could have forced his son to get up there? Really? Listen to me, do you think that? No. Obviously, Isaac could have overpowered his dad. I want you to see the gravity of what's happening here. Isaac trusted his dad, and he believed in his promises too. Watch this. The way that Abraham trusted God and lived his life was something that he passed down to his son. So in these moments, when, when Isaac has to trust his dad, he looks at his dad's faithfulness, and he looks at his dad's faith, and he looks at the promises that his dad has revealed to him throughout the history of his life, and he says, Dad, I trust you too. 
By the way, side note, how many of you teenagers in the room would be willing to lay down an altar that your parents made for you? Right? Show of hands. For real? All right. Parents, check this out. Side note. Your kid's ability to walk by faith and to trust the Lord is almost always tied to their ability to watch you walk by faith and trust the Lord. You get that, right? Listen. Have your kids watch you when times are hard and God asks you to do something. When times don't look like they're going well, when Mark said that he lost his job, have they watched you walk by faith? Look, I'm convinced of this. They say the majority of kids leave the faith when they leave the home. Here's what I'm convinced of. They probably leave the faith when they leave the home because there wasn't a whole lot of faith in the home to begin with. Does our life mimic Abraham's? In every moment of our life, when things are good and we're up on the mountaintop, we can look at God and say, thank you, Jesus. When things are bad and we're down in the valley, that we look at God and we say, thank you, Jesus, because my life is not dependent upon you showing up or you not showing up. My life is dependent upon me looking at you and watching you, Jesus, and looking back at what you've done and trusting in your goodness. And I pass that on. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, (laughs) the best news he's ever heard. And he said, here I am. And he said to him, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. See, it was a test. And it's the same test that God is calling every single one of us to. Here's basically what he says, Abraham, now I know. Now I know you love me. Now I know you trust me. Again, my question for you is, do you trust God? As we look at this saturated season, are we willing to say, God, I'm willing to sacrifice my greatest possession because I know that you are the God who provides. I know that you're better than my stuff. I know that you love me more than anything in this world. And now I know, God, that I love you because what you've done for me and I respond by giving you everything that I have. Let me say it this way. Although this passage, by the way, was real for Abraham, it's not real for you, right? It's symbolic. God's not asking you to sacrifice your son. You get that, right? But what God is asking of you, I believe, is that God is asking you, what is the one thing that you wouldn't be willing to sacrifice? What is it? What is the thing that you, uh, you put in between you and God? And I'm going to show you in just a second that that one thing, that, that one thing that sits in between you and God is the one thing that actually keeps you from God. So the question goes like this. What needs to be laid on the altar of your life? What is it? What's the thing that you love so much that it runs the risk of becoming your functional God? That's the application. That's the application. Just as the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says, are you willing? Abraham, now I know that you were willing. Are you willing? Are you willing? What's the one thing that proves that you fear and love God? Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. All right. I want to show you something. I want to show you how this weird story actually creates the greatest amount of generosity the world can ever look at. I want to to show you how it actually changes your heart. See, because here here it is. Generosity is experience. Listen, when you trust God so much that you're willing to give him anything. 
But that only happens when you see this rightly. It only happens when, not, not when you look at God, what do I need to give up for you? But it only happens when you look at this rightly and, and, and properly and you say, no, God, every bit of this is about what you gave up for me. You see, real generosity is not what you can sacrifice for God, but watch this. It's about what God has sacrificed for you. Let me show you this again in verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abram, Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, look, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. If you underline things, that's one of those right there. Because you have done this, and you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose, and they went to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. You catch it? Verse 16, by myself I have sworn. By myself I have sworn. See, check this out. This is the only time in the entire Bible that Abraham does this. Hebrews 6, um, as the writer of Hebrews is talking about this, listen to how he reflects on it. He says, when God had made a promise to Abraham, since there was nobody greater with whom to promise, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and I will multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently awaited, obtained the promise. The promise that God made to Abraham. Listen, it wasn't fulfilled in Isaac. It wasn't fulfilled in him having a son. You get that, right? This is what God wanted Abraham to see. This is what God wants you to see, is that his promise is not fulfilled in that son thousands of years ago. It was fulfilled in another son who would eventually come, and that son would give you the joy that all of us are looking for. It's the son that we celebrate Christmas for. So write this down. It's in God keeping his promises that we receive his blessings. It's, and let me show you this, okay? Look, like every story in the Bible, I want to give you something really quickly. Every story in the Bible, you are not the main point of the story. You get that, right? Here, here, here's, here, this is so freeing. You are not the center of the universe. Neither am I. So we, let's use that pronoun. We are not the center of the universe. God is. So in this story, when you begin to look at it, you have to ask yourself the question, who is the story about and what is it trying to tell us? So it's not trying to tell you or I, here's the application for your life. It's trying to flip the script and tell you, here's who God is and here's what he's doing for you. Okay, over and over and over again, you're going to see this in the Bible, but this is really important here. So thousands of years later, there would be another son, God's son, God's only son. You remember that over and over again in this passage, the angel of the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, you're giving up your son, your only son, and his name would be Jesus. That son, like Abraham's son, would have to trust the father. He would have to walk up on a mountain near Mount Moriah to be sacrificed too. But check this out, and I don't want you to miss this. The reason why this son, this only son, shows up so many times is because God has given you a glimpse, not into what Abraham would do, but what God himself would do in your place. Jesus, the promised Messiah, would come. He would come like Abraham and Isaac. He would walk up on a mountain. He would trust his father. He would lay the wood on his back. He would climb up there. He would bound himself to it, and he would die in our place. See, he would be the perfect, obedient son that the father would call up, and he would be the lamb for the offering. There would be that son that would grow up just like Isaac. He would be a man like Isaac. God's son would take a journey, like I told you already. He would take a journey to a garden, a garden called Gethsemane. And this, in this garden, he had a choice to make. Like Isaac, am I going to obey my father or not? And in this garden, God looks at him, and all the fullness and the weight of what's about to happen to him comes on him, and Jesus looks at God and says, if there's any other way, God, take this cup from me. And God says, there's not. 
So in that moment, he had to do one of two things. He had to willingly obey the cross. He had to willingly put the cross, the wood on his back, and he had to walk up on, that Mount, on Mount Moriah, and he had to sacrifice himself, or he had to not trust God and do nothing. Honestly, this decision was so agonizing to Jesus that the Bible says he sweated blood. But what did Jesus do? Jesus put the wood on his back. He trusted God fully because he knew more than anything that God loved him and he loved you and God was willing to sacrifice himself. And here's the major difference between Isaac and Jesus. See, Isaac didn't have to go through with it. Jesus is not only the better Isaac in the story, but he's also the lamb that would be slain. He's the ram caught in the thicket that would be sacrificed for you. And he would do that because he loves you. You see, according to the Bible, listen, this is the blade of God's wrath that did not come down on Isaac, had to come down on someone. And I want to explain this to you as we go into this Christmas season. According to the Bible and according to everything that we would know, there's two reasons why this has to be true. Listen, in order for God to be God, in order for God to do this, in order for God to show you his immense love, he had to be both just and holy. Let me, let me explain this to you really quickly. God had to be just to be God, and you want this. You want God to love you so much that he's just and he cares about justice. So give you an example of this. Imagine, imagine that I leave this place today and I get beat up on the way home, like beat up so bad that I'm in the ICU beat up. Now imagine that I'm laying there and things are awful and a few weeks later I get better and I end up going to the court trial of the guy who beat me up. And, and the judge is looking at the dude and he's like, hey, look, that was awful. What you just did there was awful. You cannot do that. You assaulted a guy. But I'm feeling pretty good today. Honestly, I stayed at Holiday Inn last night, had a cup of Starbucks on my way to church, feeling good. I'm going to let you off today. And I'm looking and he's like, that's not a good judge. Why? Because that judge didn't have any justice, right? That's a bad judge, an awful judge. God would be the same way. If God absolutely did anything other than punish us for what we deserve, he wouldn't be a good judge. I get asked all the time by people, like, if God is good, like, why didn't he just forgive? I was like, because he wouldn't be good. So God has to be just in order to be God, but he also has to be holy. This word holy means set apart. It means he can have nothing to do with sin. And let me just tell you, I promise you, like, you don't want a God that doesn't, that has things to do with sin. You want a God that's perfect, right? You want a God that you, you can look to and emulate. So God has to be absolutely separated from us because our corruption, which the Bible calls sin, right, it separates us because God has to be extremely holy. Now, the obvious question, at least you should be thinking, the dilemma here is how can a just and holy God have anything to do with people like us? That's the question. And I want to answer it for you. It's right here. God came down. God came down. Listen, God was so loving that he satisfied his justice by paying the penalty in your place. He was so holy that he had to be separated from us until that happened. See, the story, the picture here in Genesis 22 is the same story, that God would love you so much that look at this, verse 16, that he would swear by himself. He would swear by himself that he would do what you couldn't do, that he would pass through the covenant, that he would die in your place. When God made his covenantal promise to Abraham, there were conditions in the covenant, but the conditions had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with the Savior. It had everything to do with the Savior that would be willing to die in our place. You see, the key, the key to life-changing generosity, the key to sacrifice is not your sacrifice, it's God's sacrifice in your place. That's the key. That's the key to the entire Bible. That's the key to Christmas. 
In Genesis 22, he was looking forward to a picture where thousands of years later, the ultimate son, God's son, the promised son would come and he would be born. And that son would become your substitute so that his blood could cover your sin, so that you could stand righteous with him forever. Go back and look at verse 13 where you see it. Look at, look at it closely. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And, the, and Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it as a burnt offering. Look at this, instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. See what the angel of the Lord comes down as he comes down and he provides a sacrifice, a substitute. And listen to what Abraham calls the place. The Lord will provide. In Hebrew, it's Jehovah Jireh. Abraham looked and he recognized something significant. And it's the same exact thing that you have to recognize. And it's this. The narrative was never about Abraham. See, the narrative was about God's provision, not Abraham's obedience. You get that, right? Abraham didn't look and he didn't name the place. Abraham's faith was good. No. The entire time he looks and he says, now the Lord provides. City Church, next week is Christmas. And what I want you to know about the Christmas story is this. It's all about God's generosity towards us. It's all about God provides, not you obey. See, that's the difference. Religion says you obey, gospel says God provides. That the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. From the beginning of the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth until the day that he comes back, the same exact anthem is the one that has to be spoken. Every millisecond of history is pointing to this reality and it's that God provides. The Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. God is the one. You see a saturated life as a life that's postured in such a way that no matter the circumstances, no matter if you're up at the top or the bottom, you look at God and you say the Lord will provide. And by the way, did you notice this? Did you notice that Abraham actually says the same exact thing before? before um, God ever intervenes. He looks at his son Isaac and he says, when Isaac asks him, where will the sacrifice come from? And he says, son, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. After God steps in, he says, the Lord provided Jehovah Jireh. It didn't matter if it was before the cross or after the cross. It didn't matter if it was before the substitute or after the substitute. Abraham looked at God because he knew God and he trusted God. And he said, unconditionally, at every single point in my life, God, it is you who provides. It's your declaration. It's your promise that gives me faith. And I will walk by faith no matter what. So here's the key. Here's the key to trusting God. Listen, the key is that he trusted God unconditionally because he knew God deeply. There were no conditions attached. Abraham, in the weirdest story of the Bible, walked by faith because he truly believed that God would provide. I love this quote. John Calvin. It's actually one of my favorite quotes. Now listen to what he says. The valleys. John Calvin says, the valleys are watered with rain to make them fruitful. While in the meantime, the high summits and the lofty mountains remain dry. Let the man, therefore, become a valley who is desirous to receive the heavenly rain of God's spiritual grace. That gives me hope. You know what he's saying? He's saying oftentimes it's in the testing. Oftentimes it's in the valley that you need to look up and see that God is raining down fruit. The Lord provides. See, when the diagnosis comes in, let me just ask you, can you look at God in that moment and say, Jehovah Jireh? Because I don't know what the diagnosis is going to bring, but I do know who the God is who is sovereign over it all. Or, I mean, let's just be practical. When you get the raise, 
When, when you get the raise, we all live in Alpharetta where everybody's pretty much middle upper class and things are educated and good. And when you, when you get, and, and, and life is easy, can you look at God and you can say, God, it's not that I've done it. It's not my education. It's not my abilities, but it's your provision. And it's the same God who in the valley provided. It's the same God at the mountaintop who provides. Can you look at God at every single circumstance in our life, in the valley and on the mountaintop, in the summit and in the valley, and say, God, you are the one who provides. Jehovah Jireh is your name, and you are the one who provides. Church, that's where true generosity comes from. It's the recognition that in the middle is God. And God is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is the same God who would put himself on that sacrifice. And when things work well, it's God. And when they don't work well, It's still God's goodness. See, let me show you something. If you were standing at the foot of the cross 2,000 years ago, and you were looking at the son, the sacrifice, the one who would die, if that was you, do you know what your response would have been? It would have been the same response that the angel of the Lord gave Abraham. Listen to it. Verse 12. For now I know that you fear God. For now I know that you love me because you were willing to give your son, your only son. Let me show you how this is supposed to work. All of us in this room, right now, we're supposed to look at the center, the cross, the wood on, on the son's back, walking up on Mount Moriah, nailing himself to it. And like the angel of the Lord, you're supposed to look and you're supposed to say, now I know. God, now I know because you were willing to give your son, your only son, for me. That's the point. God, you provide. In the valleys you provide, in the hills you provide, and now I know, God, now I know. For some of you in this room, that's what you need to do. You need to look at the thing. What's the thing? What's the thing that you're willing to leverage instead of God? Like Martin Lloyd-Jones sitting in front of his office, what's that thing that you've relied on your entire life, and can you put it at the foot of the cross at the altar? And can you say, the sacrifice has already been made. God, I'll be generous. Not because you need anything from me, because now I know. Now I know, no matter what, no matter if it's the mountain or the valley, now I know, God, you love me. Because you're willing to give your son, your only son. Now I know.